Our class for this morning is continuing on in our study and prayer in the Psalms, and this morning's class is uh, number two, entitled Meditation in the Psalms. So meditation, what perhaps comes to mind when you hear this word? Meditation has come to mean different things for different people in today's modern world. The idea or the practice of meditation has been popularized by other religious groups. So, for instance, you might uh, perhaps be more inclined to think of the Buddhist tradition of meditation than even the Christian. For Buddhists, meditation is a key part of what they call their their path to enlightenment. It's where they, they empty their mind of all their bad thoughts, as they would say, so that they can slowly be replaced with positive ones. And so the image that's often associated with this is the cross-legged individual with their eyes closed and their fingers touching. And so perhaps while there's something to be admired for their power of concentration, this is not the type of meditation that we'll be talking about. Meditation is most certainly a biblical topic. And so this morning we're going to be considering from the Bible and particularly from the Psalms what it has to say about it. So what is meditation? Well, from the Bible's perspective, there's really two main Hebrew words that this comes from. So the first one is our word hagah. It simply means to murmur, and this can be in pleasure or in anger or to ponder. And our second is this word siach, and it similarly means to ponder or to converse with oneself. So we'll see, be seeing these two words come up a number of times this morning. But in the English, the word comes from a root which means to contemplate. It's the idea of being engaged in thought, engaged in contemplation or reflection. So at the core, it's really it's a pretty simple idea, and it's something that, that everyone can be engaged in. It's simply thinking. But despite how simple it is, surprisingly few people really engage in profitable meditation. Our lives have become too busy to slow down and reflect. With the rise of the internet, smartphones, social media, we've become used to the constant bombardment of information. Instead of using those moments of downtime for for contemplation and reflection, many people mindlessly gravitate to surfing the web on their phones or, or checking their social media channels. And in a society where we're used to being entertained, attention spans are surprisingly short. To be away from these images, messages, and left with our own thoughts for even a brief time can seem disconcerting, boring, or perhaps even frightening for some. And making any real progress with meditation then can be a real challenge in the society in which we live. But as we'll consider in our class together, I think it's really, it's a very important activity to be engaged in, and there's much value to be gained from a spiritual perspective. So an analogy for meditation that I thought might help us to better visualize this idea comes from the cow. So a cow spends almost its entire time in the process of chewing the cud. It's estimated that dairy cows spend an average of eight hours a day chewing the cud. It's said that a content cow is one that's actually seen chewing the cud. It's an indicator of whether the cow is healthy or not. The cows are part of a group of animals called ruminants. 
And the term comes from a part of their stomach called the rumen, which breaks down the plant material that they eat and turns it into energy and protein. And so a cow spends almost its entire day in the process of ruminating. It's an interesting that in the English, the word ruminate has come to express the idea of prolonged reflection. The expression that you've probably heard of chewing one's cud or chewing over something uh, has a similar idea. But the analogy doesn't stop there. The process of, of chewing the cud is a, an interesting one. The cow has four different parts to their stomach, which each mouthful of grass has to pass through before it can be absorbed into their system. And when a cow is chewing the cud, it, it swallows a mouthful, and it can then bring it back up again on command to rechew and re-swallow. It's interesting in terms of the process of meditation. The same idea needs to be often chewed on for a prolonged period of time and then brought back up again into the consciousness to mull it over again. It might take bringing this idea back up into the mind over and over again to really process the meaning of something. And the process of meditation is really the opposite of being in a hurry. For instance, have you ever seen a cow that's racing through its daily diet of grass? But meditation, just like the cow working its way through the cud, is a process, and it takes time. And we really have to process and digest an idea in the mind before we can really understand it or understand the implications of it. But this, though, I think is one of the main challenges to meditation. We lead uh, far busier lives than cows, and so finding the time to chew on something, to really slow down and reflect on it, can be challenging. So we can learn from the slow reflective rumination imagery that we have from the cow, but there's another animal that we can see a different aspect of meditation from, and this one has its base in scripture. Come with me to this one to Isaiah chapter 31. Isaiah chapter 31 and at verse 4. And it says there, For thus hath Yahweh spoken unto me, like as the lion and the young lion roaring on his prey. When a multitude of shepherds is called forth against him, he will not be afraid of their voice, nor abase himself for the noise of them. So shall Yahweh of hosts come down to fight for Mount Zion, for the hill thereof. And so here the word roaring in the, in the King James is the same Hebrew word hagah, which is translated meditate elsewhere. So here we have the young lion, as other translations have it, growling over its prey. And so here the lion is associated with meditation. But this is not the slow process of peacefully chewing the cud. It's the lion drooling over its prey. In order for a lion to catch its prey, there's the long process of stalking it first intensely focusing for just the right moment to emerge. And then there's the heated chase where it closes in on its objective. And then finally, the long-for moment when it finally settles down to capture and savor the uh, rewards of its efforts. But here, too, is an analogy for meditation. We, here we have a burning intensity and a focus in meditation, just like the lion stalking its prey. There's a relentless, single-minded devotion towards achieving an end result. And in meditation, it might be the burning desire to fully understand something or to comprehend it, the implications of, of a particular idea. 
And then there's the heated chase to understand it, leaving no stone unturned in the process. And then finally, just like the lion capturing its prey, we finally reach that understanding, that comprehension of the majesty of God's word. And we too in that moment can settle down to savor the rewards of such understanding. But in this we can see meditation is somewhat like a climactic activity. Something with an objective, an end result in mind, and a, and a desire at which we desire intensely to achieve. And this is the imagery we have from the lion. And such is the reward of those who diligently seek out God's scriptures of truth with the goal of really comprehending what's contained therein. So hopefully the the imagery from the cow and the lion helps us to visualize some of these characteristics and the traits required to effectively meditate. But what should be the focus of our meditation and what does the Bible have to say about it? Well, the the Psalms, as we might expect, can help us a great deal on this subject. So let's have a look at a few passages from the Psalms that relate to this idea of meditation. So you come with me to this one. This is in Psalm 1. Psalm 1, right here at the beginning of the Psalms, and we'll pick it up at verse 2. It says there, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law doth he meditate day and night. So right here at the beginning of the Psalms, we have meditation and its prominent role. And in Psalm 1, we have a contrast between two different types of people. Verse 6 describes them as the righteous and the ungodly. And so the righteous man in verse 2 is meditating in God's law day and night. And so right away in the Psalms, as it would seem, we're being shown that meditation isn't to be a casual, infrequent thing. Day and night, there's not much getting around it. This is something that we're to be engaged in all the time. But this is not a chore either for the righteous man, because verse 2 says it's a delight. The righteous man delights into looking into God's law. And the man who does this is greatly rewarded, because it goes on in verse 3 and says... He shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that bringeth forth his fruit in his season. His leaf also shall not wither, and whatsoever he doeth shall prosper. And so here we have the reward of the righteous, the imagery of eternal eternal life in the kingdom of God. It says his leaf will not wither. So let's have a look at another psalm with the same idea, and this is found in Psalm 71. Psalm 71 and at verse 24. It says there, My tongue also shall talk of thy righteousness all the day long, for they are confounded, for they are brought unto shame that seek my hurt. So here the word talk is the same word, Hebrew word Hagah that we saw in Psalm 1 verse 2. It means to ponder or to meditate. It says, My tongue also shall meditate of thy righteousness all the day long. Here we have the same idea as Psalm 1. The psalmist says he will meditate of God's righteousness all the day long, similar to the day and night that we saw in Psalm 1. Meditation on the things of God is something that we're always to be thinking about, we're always to be concerned with. Let's have a look at a couple of other, or another psalm that repeats this same idea a number of times, and that's in Psalm 119. This idea 
is really everywhere when you start looking for it in Psalm 119. Verse 15, it says, I will meditate in thy precepts and have respect unto thy ways. So here the psalmist is meditating in God's precepts. Come down to verse 23. It says, Princes also did sit and speak against me, but thy servant did meditate in thy statutes. So again, he's meditating in God's statutes. Come down to verse 48. It says, My hands also will I lift up unto thy commandments, which I have loved, and I will meditate in thy statutes. Meditating in God's statutes once again. Come down to verse 78. Let the proud be ashamed, for they dealt perversely with me without a cause, but I will meditate in thy precepts. Instead of reacting to the, the ways of the proud man, the psalmist is meditating in God's precepts. Come down to verse 97. It says, Oh, how love I thy law, it is my meditation all the day. So again, God's law is his meditation all the day. It's his, in his continual thoughts because of his love for it. Again in verse 99, I have more understanding than all my teachers, for thy testimonies are my meditation. God's testimonies are again the meditation of the psalmist. Through reflection on the testimonies of God, he has more understanding than all his teachers. And then if you come down with me to, to verse 148, it says, Mine eyes prevent the night watches that I might meditate in thy word. The net translation says, My eyes anticipate the nighttime hours so I can meditate on God's word. So here the psalmist is looking forward to the nighttime hours because it's then away from the, the busyness of the day that he can meditate on God's word. There's a consistent emphasis here on the meditation of the things of God. But against such a, a high ideal of continual meditation, we might be inclined to think that it's perhaps quite impractical to attain to such heights. Well, Brother Grocott mentions this very aspect in his book, Be Transformed, when considering such an idea. And while, while considering the practicality of such things, he's also quite uncompromising. Here's what he says in volume two. He says, does this seem like an impractical ideal, speaking of meditating day and night, only for those who do not have a pressing daily round of, of labor and responsibility to take care of? Perhaps we are missing the meaning of meditation. It is not necessarily a withdrawn, abstract, inactive meditation, but rather a positive, active, practical application of the law of God to every phase and detail of life's necessary activities. We should do nothing, say nothing, think nothing without the guidance of the law of God. It must be our constantly consulted compass, our meditation day and night. We must ask at each step of the way, what is the will of God? Which is but another way of saying, and it's the whole key to life that we perceive and realize this. It's another way of saying, what is the way of wisdom and joy and harmony and facing reality? So here, as Brother Grokot describes, meditating day and night is a way of life. It's patterning all our actions, thoughts, and ways on the law of God. It's trying to walk in accordance with the will of God. And it doesn't mean that we're completely withdrawn from the world all of the time in a quiet place of meditation, unable to fulfill our, our daily responsibilities. This type of withdrawal certainly has its proper and its necessary place in our lives, but this type of continual meditation is a transformation of our characters and our outlook 
on life. Everything that we do is in accordance with the guidance from the word of God. We live our life in accordance with what God would have us to do rather than our own will. We're continually asking, what is the will of God in every situation? And as we'll consider a bit later, there's a battle going on in our minds, a battle for our minds. Will we follow our own way of thinking, the way of the world, the mind of the flesh, or will we follow the mind of the spirit? And taking the time to meditate on God's word is how we take the knowledge that we get from reading God's word and transform it into action for our own situation and our own circumstances. We have to think through what God's word means for us and what he's instructing us to do. And we have to be honest with ourselves. It's much easier to think that we're, just, we're doing just fine and we can continue to do whatever we like than it is to think that, well, perhaps there's something that God expects us to change in our life. Brother Mark Vincent describes meditation this way in his book, Exploring the Psalms. He says, meditation then is essential. More important than looking up words and concordances and tabulating lists of data is simply to sit with open Bible and carefully read and prayerfully meditate. It was something that David loved to do. He looked upon it as one of his greatest pleasures and highest privileges. The same should be true for us. Prayerful consideration of God's word is one of our most important and personal tasks. So meditation is a essential part of our lives in Christ. And without it, we would, un- we would struggle to understand how to live an acceptable life before God. It's essential to transform the knowledge that comes from the word of God into a practical application for our own lives. So certainly meditation is a biblical subject and one that's necessary for us to be engaged in. Not only this, but God is interested in our meditation as well. You come with me back to the beginning of the Psalms at Psalm 5. We looked at this Psalm a little bit uh, in our last class. Psalm 5, verse 1, a Psalm of David. He says in verse 1, Give ear to my words, O Lord, consider my meditation. So here David asked God to consider his meditation. The thoughts of his heart were something that he asked God to consider. And really to even think of asking this would have to mean a couple of things. First of all, that God would be interested in what he was thinking about. And secondly, that God would be pleased with what he found, that his thoughts were in line with God's thoughts. David had told Solomon this very thing back in 1 Chronicles chapter 28, and I'll just read this. 1 Chronicles 28, verse 9 says, And thou, Solomon, my son, know thou the God of thy father, and serve him with a perfect heart and with a willing mind. For the Lord searcheth all hearts and understandeth all the imaginations of the thoughts. If thou seek him, he will be found of thee, but if thou forsake him, he will cast thee off forever. God searches our hearts, and he understands all of our thoughts. There's nothing that we can think, do, or say that he doesn't already know about. The challenge then is to make sure that our thoughts are as pure as possible. That we serve him with a perfect heart and a willing mind. And if we genuinely seek him, 
we will find him. But if we're more interested in our own thoughts and our own ways and God is simply an, over, an, an afterthought, we're in essence forsaking him. David talks more about this in Psalm 19. Come with me over to Psalm 19. Psalm 19 and verses 7 to 9 talk about what should be the object of our meditation. In verse 7, it says, it's the law of the Lord. In verse 7 again, the testimony of the Lord. Verse 8, the statutes of the Lord. Verse 8, the commandment of the Lord. Verse 9, the fear of the Lord. And again in verse 9, the judgments of the Lord. These are some of the things that we should be meditating on. But why, why these things? Well, it, it gives us the answer. It says in verse 7, because they convert the soul. Again in verse 7, they make wise the simple. Verse 8, they rejoice the heart. Again in verse 8, they enlighten the eyes. In verse 9, they endure forever. And again in verse 9, they're true and righteous altogether. And then he goes on in verse 11 and says, Moreover by them is thy servant warned, and in keeping of them there is great reward. By God's word we're warned, and in keeping God's word there is great reward. The more we ponder and think on these things, the better we'll be able to follow after them. But like we considered last, in our last class, we have a problem, and that is that we fall short. And David was all too aware of this, and so he continues in verse 12 and says, Who can understand his errors? Cleanse thou me from secret faults. Keep back thy servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then shall I be upright, and I shall be innocent from the great transgression. We need God's help if we fall short. When we sin before him, we need his help. We need his help to overcome our sins. Not that they have dominion over us, but that we can overcome them. Our words and our actions are really a direct correlation of what's in our hearts. And what's in our heart is the sum of the things that we think about. David sums this up beautifully in verse 14. He says, Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, my strength and my redeemer. The meditation of our heart should be found acceptable in God's sight. And to be acceptable, it must be filled with things that God would be pleased with. And what would he be pleased with? Well, he told us already what these were. His law, his testimony, his statutes, his commandments, fear of him, his judgments. These are the things that can help us to rise above our fleshly tendencies and to focus on higher things, to focus on spiritual things. Our own thoughts and God's thoughts are on a completely different plane. The prophet Isaiah describes this for us. If you come with me over to Isaiah chapter 55. Isaiah 55 and at verse 6. It says, Seek ye the Lord while he may be found. Call ye upon him while he is near. And here you could say is, another, is the purpose of meditation described in another way. To seek God while we have opportunity, while he may be found. 
To seek him, we must be willing and desire to search his word of truth that we might better understand what it is that he desires from us. And to recognize that we need his help in this regard, that we need to call upon him while he is near. We need help from our Father in heaven, which is given in answer to our prayers to him. By seeking God, we'll come to better understand the difference between his thoughts and our thoughts. And so it continues in verse 7. It says, Let the wicked forsake his way, and the unrighteous man his thoughts. And let him return unto the Lord, and he will have mercy upon him. And to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, saith the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. God's thoughts are much higher than our own. Left to ourselves, we're like the unrighteous man in verse 7. Our ways and our thoughts have to be left behind. They have to be forsaken. But having forsaken them, we must turn to our God in humility and seek his forgiveness in prayer. God is willing to have mercy on us when we seek him in the right way. And he's ready to abundantly pardon, as it says. And so here in verses 8 and 9, we have the difference between the natural and the spiritual. God's thoughts and his ways are much different than our own. Just like the heavens are higher than the earth, so his ways and his thoughts are higher than ours. If we want to draw near to God, we have to fill our mind with godly things. We have to fill our thoughts with God's thoughts and not our own. And this, then, really is the objective of meditation from a biblical perspective. It's not simply letting our minds wander in whatever direction it might take us in. It's filling our minds with godly thoughts and contemplating what that means for us. It's turning God's thoughts into godly ways. Patterning our life after what God would have us to do. And so this really brings us to our next section, and that is the battle for the mind. Meditation is all about what we think about, what we fill our minds with. It's important, I think, to recognize that there's a battle going on in our minds. Really, it's a battle for our minds. So let's consider the words of the Apostle Paul on this subject in Romans chapter 7. And I'll put this on the screen from the, from the ESV. I think it helps to, uh, to make sense of this passage a little better. But feel free to turn it up in Romans chapter 7. Romans chapter 7 and verse 14, it says, For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. For I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. So here we have a contrast between two different ways, the spiritual and the fleshly. The spiritual comes from God's law, whereas flesh comes from sin comes from us. Paul says, I don't understand my own actions. And though he wants to follow after the law of God, he finds himself doing the very thing he hates, the ways of the flesh. And so he continues on in verse 18 and says, for I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh, for I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Though he wanted to do what was right, Paul often found that he didn't have the ability to carry it out. He wanted to do good, but he found himself doing the evil things that he didn't want to do. 
And so here's the battle that goes on in the mind. And he continues on in verse 21. It says, So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. When we want to do the right thing, evil is close at hand. So here we have the analogy of a battle going on. It's a battle that's going on in our minds. It's like the enemy that's lurking just off in the horizon, far enough away that we don't really pay much attention to him. But the moment that we let our guard down, he's ready to attack. He's ready to make us captives to his way of thinking. And that's why we have to always be alert. That's why the psalmist talks about God's law being his meditation all the day. Part-time isn't good enough. The moment we start to let fleshly thoughts reign in our minds is the moment that we start to fall back into sin. Brother John Carter put this very well back in 1932. And here's what he said in the Christadelphian. He said, But saints are separated from the world, and it becomes them not to let the mind dwell on the sins of the world. The mind insensibly is affected by the stream of thought passing through it, and it is desirable to have the stream as pure as possible. A mind familiarized by pictures of evil is not strongly fortified if sin should assail. I'll just read that again. The mind insensibly is affected by the stream of thought passing through it. Our minds are the sum of the things that we think about. And therefore, it's important to ensure that the things that we think about are as pure as possible. If we fill our minds with pictures of evil, as he says, we're only asking for trouble. If our minds are filled with the TV shows, the movies, the pastimes of this world, the sins of the world, we're only setting ourselves up for failure. Our minds naturally flow in that direction as it is, so we're not fortifying ourselves against sin if we allow ourselves to dwell on them. We're to be separate from the world and not to be a part of it. We have to rise above our fleshly tendencies and fill our minds with godly things. And the Psalms illustrates this same battle for the mind, the battle that's evident in the things that we think about, our meditation. And so here we have a contrast between two different ways, the, the thinking of the righteous and the thinking of the wicked. We have in Psalm 1 verse 2, the man who meditates in God's law day and night. We saw this, his delight is in God's law and he fills his mind with godly thoughts. And in the very next Psalm, this is contrasted with the wicked. Or as Psalm 2 verse 1 says, the heathen. And what are they filling their minds with in Psalm 2? It's vain things. This, the word imagine here is the same word hagah, translated meditate elsewhere. They're meditating or thinking on vain things. Vain, as the word means, is having no real value. This is thinking on things with no real value to them. The world is full of, of vain things, things that at, perhaps at best have no real value, but more likely are evil and harmful. The challenge then is, how do, or what do we allow ourselves to think about? Do we think about godly things or vain things? Well, it continues on in Proverbs chapter 8. 
And we just mentioned this comparison. Proverbs 8 talks of the person who speaks truth. This is the same word here, speak. It's the same word for meditate. He meditates on things of truth. And this is contrasted in Psalm 38, verse 12, with the man who imagines, same word for meditate, he meditates on deceit. Instead of thinking on things of truth, he's thinking about how he can deceive others. As Psalm 38, verse 12 says, he imagines deceits all the day long. The righteous man meditates on God's law all the day long, but the wicked meditates on deceit all the day long. Indeed, we're, we're all very good at deceiving ourselves, at convincing ourselves that things aren't really as bad as they really are. And the type of thinking that, we're engaged, that we engage in is evident in our words as well. And so when we look at Proverbs chapter 15, verse 28, it talks of the righteous who studies, the same word for meditate, He's, he meditates before he answers. He thinks carefully about what the right thing to say is in any given situation. And this is contrasted with the wicked, who rather than carefully thinking about how to answer, they, as it were, pour out evil things. The first thing that comes to mind, they blurt it out. And it continues like a faucet pouring out water. And because this is the wicked man and their thoughts are filled with vanity, their speech too is filled with evil things, with unhelpful things. And so here we have the challenge about what we think about, what it is that we allow to occupy our consciousness. And this is a battle that's, that's waged every day and one that we often fail in, as the Apostle Paul describes in Romans chapter 7. The only way that we can strive to do better is to fill our minds with godly thoughts. Brother Grocott, again, and Be Transformed, describes how we can identify for ourselves where we're at in this endeavor. <clears throat> He says in volume two of Be Transformed, <clears throat> he says, many things fill our minds and come and go as memory is provoked, but it is what occupies our heart and interest and attention that counts. What or who is it to whom our mind irresistibly turns whenever the pressure of the immediate present is relaxed? That is the acid test of our affections. Here we stand face to face with our real selves. What or who occupies the secret inner sanctum of our heart, where at every opportunity we delight to retire and muse? This is where God looks in making up his jewels, and if he does not find himself there, he passes on. We may have lots of other things laid out to show him, but he will not be interested in them. David said, Thy testimonies are my delight and, my, and the rejoicing of my heart. I have longed after thy precepts. I have loved thy commandments. Thy statutes have been my songs and my pilgrimage. Oh, how love I thy law, it is my meditation all the day. <clears throat> Extreme, overstated, too highly colored, poetic exaggeration? Not at all, though it may seem so to the crude, common animal outlook. Here lies the difference between death and life. David realized what the scriptures are, not a book of ordinances for the regulation of servants, but a divinely provided medium of intimate communion between a father and his children. And here really, as he describes, is something for, for sober self-examination. When the pressures of the moment are relaxed, when we have the freedom to choose what we do with our time, where do we turn? Is it to the things of God's word, to the majesty of God's ways or the service of the truth, or to some other fleshly pursuit? Here's an aspect that we, I think, can, probably, can all do better at. 
that we're all in need of God's help with. That we indeed might be servants that are pleasing to him. That we might be, as Psalm 1 talks about, the tree planted by the rivers of water that brings forth his fruit in his season. So the Psalms, though, I think can help us in this endeavor. They provide several different key themes in terms of what we should meditate on. When we look at what the subject of meditation is in the Psalms, it really falls into one of two categories. It's either the word of God or the works of God. So let's just have a look at a few passages having to do with the word of God. We'll just run through these fairly quickly. Joshua 1 verse 8, Thou shalt meditate therein, that is, the book of the law, day and night. In Psalm 1 verse 2, it says, In his law doth he meditate day and night. Psalm 119 verse 15, it says, I will meditate in thy precepts. Verse 23, thy servant did meditate in thy statutes. Verse 48, I will meditate in thy statutes. Verse 78, I will meditate in thy precepts. And verse 148, I might meditate in thy word. We've seen some of these already. Here we have the word of God as one of the great objects of meditation. And this is the same as the words of David in Psalm 19 that we saw earlier. When we read God's word, we might perhaps know what it says quite quickly. But to take more than just a surface-level meaning from it requires meditation. We're unlikely to perceive how deep the commands go without slow, thoughtful reflection on it. There might be many other spheres of circumstance or behavior that they apply to that we had never even perceived of before. God's ways and his thoughts, as we saw, are much higher than our own. And so we ought to expect that there are treasures hidden therein for those who take the time to uncover them. To use an analogy, God's word is is like what you might call a chain of corridors. You go into the first corridor of thought and you search it out. And just when you had thought that you had mastered the subject, you notice that there's a door at the bottom. You go through the door only to find a new corridor, a whole new corridor of thought that you had never seen before. There's a whole new dimension which you had previously been ignorant of. And so you take the command to a new level, only to find that there's another door at the bottom. And the command went even deeper than you knew before. You proceed through this door only to find a whole new corridor that you never even knew existed. And this is why meditation on God's word is so necessary. If you never take, really take the time to slow down and reflect on God's word, then really you'll never make it out of the first corridor. Yes, there might be beneficial lessons at every level, but there's many hidden deeper lessons in the word of God that have been put there for us to search out. And who's to say how many levels deep this might go? God's ways and his thoughts are much higher than our own. Well, the other object of meditation in Scripture is the works of God. And this, too, is quite a broad subject. It includes the works of God in history, particular biblical history, but also his activities in the world 
today. This might be his work in the nations around us or his work in our individual lives. Or it might include reflecting on the wonders of creation. So just a few passages that talk about meditating on God's work. Psalm 77 verse 12 says, I will meditate on all God's work. Psalm 105 verse 2, it says, Talk ye of all his wondrous works. The same word for meditate, talk. Psalm 119 verse 27, So shall I talk or meditate of thy wondrous works. Psalm 143 verse 5, I meditate on all thy works. I muse or I meditate on the work of thy hands. Psalm 145 verse 5, I will speak of the glorious works of thy majesty and of thy wondrous works. Here, speak is the same word for meditate. By reflecting on the works of God, we come to realize that not only are God's thoughts, his statutes, his precepts higher than our own, but also his ways are higher than our own. God acts on his word. He doesn't sit idly by like the the so-called gods of the world. God is at work in in the world around us, and he has been throughout history. He's bringing about his will on the earth and working in the lives of men and women. He is a God that we can put our trust in and know that he can help us. We come to realize, too, that we must turn our knowledge into action. Not only must we know God's will, but we have to do it. And here is the great value that meditation can provide for us. It helps us to turn our knowledge of God's word into action. It's a, into a way of life that's pleasing to him. Brother Mark Vincent describes the value of meditation this way, and this is in the testimony special issue, Be Constant in Prayer. He says, Those minutes of reflection on God in which we reposition our thinking towards him and mentally resituate ourselves can be the most precious of the entire day. We can accomplish more of real power and lasting value in those few minutes than in an entire day of meetings, conference calls, chores, errands, and procedures. No one denies that it's tremendously hard to muster the discipline to find these moments of meditation, especially when a day's work is in progress or has already been done. But the more meditation is regarded as one of the disciples' crowning privileges and most powerful resources, the more natural it will become. God has given us all the ability to think and to meditate. The more we value this precious ability, the more natural it will become. It can help us to, as he says, mentally resituate ourselves, to resituate our perspectives and bring them into line with those of our Father. But before we close, let's consider the words of another psalm, a psalm in which meditation really, as it were, helped to mentally resituate the thoughts of the heart and to bring them in line with God's. And that's in Psalm 77. Come with me to Psalm 77. Psalm 77 is a psalm of Asaph. It says in verse 1, I cried unto God with my voice, even unto God with my voice, and he gave ear unto me. In the day of my trouble I sought the Lord. My sore ran in the night and ceased not. My soul refused to be comforted. I remembered God and was troubled. I complained, and my spirit was overwhelmed. And so Asaph, or perhaps one of the sons of Asaph, starts off the psalm speaking about his prayer to God. He was in considerable distress, and so he speaks of it as the day of my trouble. And this word trouble comes up at three times in verses 2 to 4. 
It's as if he's searching for words to convey the intensity of his anguish. Such was his state of mind that he says, my soul refused to be comforted. In this state of distress, he realized that he needed God's help, and he, so he cries to him in prayer. In verse 3, it says he complained. The Hebrew word for complained here is our word siach, translated as meditation elsewhere. He turns to meditation in his distress, and initially, the result is his spirit is overwhelmed. In his state of distress, his thoughts, perhaps understandably, are, are more inward, focused on his problems, thinking about it more only compounds the problem, and he feels overwhelmed. But in verse 4, it says, Thou holdest mine eyes waking. I am so troubled that I cannot speak. I have considered the days of old, the years of ancient times. I call to remembrance my song in the night. I commune with mine own heart, and my spirit made diligent search. The the psalmist turns inward to examine himself. He remembers times gone by. He remembers how he has praised God in the past. And again, it says he communes with his heart. This word communed here is again our word siach for meditation. This time, though, he goes deeper. He meditates on why it is that he feels this way. He leaves no stone unturned, as it were. His spirit makes diligent search. It's, he, it's as if he's trying to grapple with the question of why. Why has this happened? Why does he feel this way? And so in verse 7, he asks those questions. He says, verse 7, Will the Lord cast off forever, and will he be favorable no more? Is his mercy clean gone forever? Doth his promise fail forevermore? Hath God forgotten to be gracious? Hath he in anger shut up his tender mercies? Here, no doubt, are many questions that those in difficult trials perhaps have had to grapple with. Will God never show favor to me again? Will his promise, or has his promise failed? Has he forgotten to be gracious? But in pondering these questions, he comes to a sober realization because he says in verse 10, And I said, This is my infirmity, but I will remember the years of the right hand of the Most High. None of his questions or doubts about God were true. This was not a problem with God. The infirmity was his own. His own weakness had tried to place the blame on God, but the weakness was with himself. Though he had tried to ignore it, he had no one to blame but himself for thinking this way. But how had he come to this realization? Verse 11 says, I will remember the works of the Lord. Surely I will remember thy wonders of old. I will meditate also of all thy work and talk of thy doings. Thy way, O God, is in the sanctuary. Who is so great a God as our God? He overcame his distress by meditating on the works of God. He remembered what God had done in the past. And in verse 12, we have both of our Hebrew words for meditation. Meditate, of course, is our word hagah, but also the word talk is our word siach for meditate. He meditated on all the works of God and reflected on his great deeds. He recognized that God was in the way of the sanctuary, that God's way was in the sanctuary. The word sanctuary means holy or or set apart, and so God's way was holy. It was so much higher than anything else. And he realizes that there's no God so great as our God. And so throughout the rest of the psalm, we have repeated echoes back to God's work in the Exodus, 
We won't look at these now, but there's at least 12 links between Psalm 77 and the Song of Moses in Exodus chapter 15. By calling to mind God's works in the Exodus, the psalmist is assured that God can and will deliver his people. He's able to mentally resituate himself, as it were, and to bring his thinking back into line with God's. Our seemingly large problems pale in comparison with the grand scheme of God's purpose and will with mankind. And our perspectives and our outlook on life need to mirror our Father in heaven. The more we meditate on God's word and God's works, the better we can align ourselves to this way of thinking. But perhaps we might ask ourselves, will meditation really work? Will it really make a difference? Let's close with the words of Paul to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 4. First Timothy chapter 4, and we'll pick it up at verse 12. It says, Let no man despise thy youth, but be thou an example of the believers, in word, in conversation, in charity, in spirit, in faith, in purity. Till I come, give attendance to reading, to exhortation, to doctrine. Neglect not the gift that is in thee, which was given thee by prophecy, with the laying on of the hands of the presbytery. Meditate upon these things. Give thyself wholly to them, that thy profiting may appear to all. So we will profit if we devote ourselves to meditation on godly things, and others will see that we've profited. So let us not only make time for these things, but devote ourselves to them. He says in verse 16, take heed unto thyself and unto the doctrine. Continue in them, for in doing this thou shalt both save thyself and them that hear thee.